uh, what a privilege it is to be able to share with you tonight. I'm so glad you're here. And uh, you may have found out uh, or heard before that I would be speaking tonight, and you showed up anyway, so that means a lot as well. And how appropriate the songs were tonight. And then Pastor Reese almost prayed my message, so we could probably just go home, and you heard it already. And so, uh, but that's how the Lord works. Uh, he, everything flows together, and uh, especially when we're all hearing from the Lord. So I'm going to go to Job chapter 9. In Job chapter 9, I'm going to read verse 32. Job chapter 9, verse 32, and I apologize for the graphics on the screen. When I made them, they was really clear and vibrant, and then on this screen, it's not quite as clear and vibrant as we was hoping for, so I apologize for that. Verse 32, Job is talking, and he says this. He, and he's talking about God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's hand or rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I can not. Would you all pray with me one more time tonight? Father, we just come before you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for stories, God, stories of lives that have been redeemed, of lives that have been in a fire that you walked through them and brought them out, of lives that were in trouble. But God, Lord, you made a, another way, Lord. You brought us through. So many people in this room, Lord, could testify and share stories like that. And we thank you for more and more stories of your goodness and your saving power. Lord, I thank you for your anointing. I thank you for your words from your throne to minister to your people tonight. Use me as your vessel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So over the last few years, when opportunity has presented itself, and I've had an opportunity, I've shared this message, and over time it's kind of morphed as there's been more to share, or I felt freer to share some of the things. And so I've had opportunity to share in many uh, AG churches. I've shared this in Baptist churches. I've shared this in uh, uh, Christian churches of all places. Just every time I have an opportunity, I share this. And so uh, what a privilege it is to share it with you tonight as well. It's always my hope that in talking about things that have happened to me, that it would minister to you. Because if you had time, you could share the same type of stories and they would be a ministry to me. Joseph told his brothers, he said, you know, what you meant for evil or what the enemy meant for evil, God meant it for good to the saving of many lives. And that's what I want God to do through me and for you and for those that hear our stories is I want God to receive glory and I love to see lives changed. And so my life like yours is full of ups and downs, uh, all kinds of wounds. You've had wounds, I've had wounds, and over time those wounds become scars, and every scar that we have, it tells a story. And all the stories that we could share, but we all have them in some way. And so for a few minutes, can I just share with you a few scars? The little ones and the big ones, is that okay? So the little ones I've shared uh, a little bit uh, with our prayer meeting of, uh, about a month or so ago. When I was five years old, I contacted Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, 
And uh, for two weeks, I was running 100 plus temperature, and at times it was boarding on 104 and going up until the doctors just didn't have any answers. Went to several hospitals, didn't have any answers, had lots of people praying for me, but it was my little two-year-old brother that reached up in the hospital bed uh, one day, and he prayed for me a real simple prayer like, Jesus heal Bubba. And immediately almost, they say my fever went down, and they say in the charts, uh, there was a, a Christian doctor uh, that wrote the final uh, chart in the chart and said it was a miracle, that it was a healing that took place. And so there is somewhere a record of a healing uh, in science that God did it. There was no other way to explain it. A year later, through an accident, I lost sight in my right eye. And over time, I've lost control and muscle movement, and so I'm blind in this eye. So just so you know, if you come up to shake my hand and I don't see you and you're over here, it's nothing personal. I just didn't see you. So you might have to speak up to get me to turn around and shake your hand. I'm not ignoring you. And uh, I, I, uh, I can't tell you the scars that sometimes you feel with that um, because I've lost the muscle movement, and I've had several surgeries to get the eye to look straight. It's a, it's a miracle that I have it even now. But uh, can, I, can I just share with you something? You know, kids, kids are so funny. Uh, it used to be even worse than it is now. But, you know, I'd look at a kid, and I'd be talking to a kid or a teenager, and, and they'd be going, which way are you looking? You know, I, I did that kind of thing. And uh, there was one little boy just, just not long ago, he said, how come you're looking at your nose all the time? I don't know that I'm looking at my nose. It's just where it's at, you know? And uh, so, you know, there's things that you deal with, and uh, I'm, just I'm just glad to be able to uh, have an eye that is still there, and, and God's ministering in that, and I believe that he's going to heal that, and we'll talk about healing here in a minute. And so I shared in Kids Gym uh, how that when I was a teenager, I began to have nosebleeds that absolutely would not stop. Uh, we went to doctor after doctor for two years, and nobody knew what to do. All boys have nosebleeds. All teenage boys go through that. It's just a phase. And come to find out, when God sent us to a specialist, he finally looked in the right place, and I had a tumor bigger than an egg in the back of my head, and it was hanging out uh, into the throat, and they did not know how to get it out. And they, I remember them, I remember going into surgery, and I had a, a, a blue mark right here because they were going to cut my face open and go in and get that. And I vividly remember praying. I told the kids this at Kids Jam. I remember praying, God, I'm ugly enough. Don't let them cut my face open. And uh, the doctor literally said that when he was in the operating room, he had the scalpel in his hand, and he said, I can't cut this young man's face. We've got to find another way to do it. And they did, and it was not cancerous, and I don't have a scar here, and I'm still good looking tonight, and I appreciate, I appreciate it, Lord. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And so they say, how did you get, how did you get, uh, how, did they, how did they do it? How did they get that tumor out of there without cutting your face? And all I was told was, you have no idea how far your upper lip can stretch once it's been detached. That's what they told me. That's all I want to know. I don't want to imagine anymore. And so as time has gone on, I'm so grateful that there was miracles, and I see God's hand working and all that in my childhood. But either as a result, and what I haven't told the kids, or what I haven't told uh, most of you is either as a result of that tumor or the surgery of the tumor, my tear ducts were damaged. And so the only eye that I can see out of no longer produces tears, and so I spend tons and tons of money uh, every month on 
getting the right teardrops, getting the right mixture so that I can see every day. And so if you see me rubbing my eyes quite a bit, it's not because I'm tired. It's not because I don't get enough sleep. It's not because I'm lazy. It's because I just can't get the, that feeling out of my eye. And so it's constantly there. And so God and I have had a lot of one-sided conversations because I believe he can heal me. Nobody believes it more than me. Nobody trusts God more than me. I know that he works. I've seen him heal me. Uh, I've, I've seen him heal so many of, of my friends and my relatives and so many stories. I know that he is still in the healing business, but for whatever reason, until he does, I keep holding on to him. Uh, until he does, uh, I'm holding on to him, and he's going to lead me through. And I just have to look at it kind of like this. When you come into an encounter with God, when God does an incredible experience in your life, when God does an incredible work in your life, you walk away with a limp. You walk away a little bit changed. And so if nothing else, I've walked away with some kind uh, of, of change in my life, a reminder of the goodness of God and of the healing power of God. And if I have to walk with a limp until he comes, I'm still holding on to him. It's going to be all right. And so that's the best answer that I've got because I'm not healed yet but I know that he can. And when he does it in his time, it'll be in his time. And until then, I continue to walk with a limp. And so I've had scars and you have scars and I've had wounds that have turned into scars. And we have all kinds of stories to tell. We could talk about a back surgery, knee surgery, more eye surgeries, hand surgeries, all kinds of stuff that I have gone through and all kinds of stuff that you have gone through. So I know scars, physical and emotional, and I know scars and I know that God heals, and I know miracles as well. As time went on, and I've been in the ministry for over 17 years, and I've got a beautiful family, 17 years. I've got a beautiful wife, and I've got a beautiful, blonde, curly-headed little girl, the most precious thing in the world. And we've been in the ministry all this time, and we've worked at several churches, and we've been at a particular church in the Dallas area for seven years. And we had been so successful at the previous place, but we found like every time God was beginning to move, it, it, it just like caved in on us. We were just up against a brick wall all the time, and we just, we were so drained, and we were so tired, and we just felt like it was time that, uh, it was time for us to move on. It was time that God was sending us somewhere else, and so we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what was going to happen, and I just believed that God had something else for us, and so we resigned. And uh, my wife agreed to that and believed, uh, it was my understanding that we believed that God had something new for us. And it wasn't long after that, we received a phone call and uh, we began to work at another place on the other side of Dallas from where we were. And uh, man, it was incredible. It was incredible how God began to work. In just the two months that we had been there as associate pastors, so many people coming to the Lord. I don't want to give numbers, but the numbers to me was astounding compared to what we had experienced for those seven years previous to that. And God was really moving. My wife was very depressed and uh, hurting for ministry. Ministry can just be so draining. And um, many of you know that. And I remember it was the Wednesday night before Easter, and uh, my little girl had been sick, and so I stayed home part of the day when she got off work. She stayed home with her. I went to church, led worship that night, and I remember driving back across Dallas, and I stopped to get a bite to eat, and I texted them, missed you guys. I'm on my way home, and I thought how 
unusual it is that I didn't receive a response. And so I drive across Dallas, I pull into our garage, and I remember thinking how weird it is that my wife's car is not there. And I remember walking into an empty house, and I remember looking around the rooms, and I remember walking into the kitchen, and there on the kitchen table, the little dinette table that we had there, there was a a note on there. And I read the note, and it was basically said that she was leaving me, that she was giving up on her marriage, giving up on ministry, giving up on everything, and, and she had taken my little girl, and she had left. And I can't begin to tell you or explain to you the, the drain that, that just felt, uh, the, the uselessness of everything, the, the thoughts that went through my head of what am I going to do now? How am I going to deal with this? What am I going to tell this new church that we just accepted this position at? And God's been moving there. And it's like every time God is beginning to really do a work, the enemy wants to show up and he wants to ruin that work if at all possible. And all these things are just going through my mind. What am I going to do now? And I can honestly say that the, the church there was very supportive. The pastor there was very supportive. And uh, I just kept on doing the only thing I knew to do. Go to work. Pray. Keep pressing in. Keep leading in worship. Keep doing the things that you're called to do. Keep doing the things that, that they have you there to do. And I, I just put my hand to the task. I did everything in my mind to uh, show my wife that I loved her. I did everything that I could possibly think of to share with her that this is what I wanted, that you are what I want, that this family is what I want, that we can make it, that it's going to be okay. And I thought for a while that maybe it was going to work out and that maybe we were going to pull through and it was about four months later into the summer, I remember I was at a sectional council meeting and I received a phone call and in that phone call I was told to be ready to receive something in the mail because she had filed for divorce. And her answer was no. I had offered to quit the ministry, I'd offered to go to counseling, I'd offered to do whatever it would take to keep us together. And her answer was, was simply no. And those wounds and those scars are there. And God is still moving and he's still working. And I want to share with you the rest of the story. A lot of things took place. A lot of time, a, a lot of healing, a lot of reflection, a lot of waiting on God. And honestly, in some ways, some of these things are obviously still a struggle seven years later. But God is still working. And you could share similar stories with me tonight about all those kind of things, but it just makes me wonder, in this world that we live in, and in the situations that are going on in the world around us, when we're hearing over and over and over again, God is no longer relevant. Faith is no longer relevant. Jesus is no longer relevant. That's a crutch. That's what people use who are weak. We don't need those kind of things. It's all about education. It's all about science. It's all about technology. The answers are no longer in faith. The answer is no longer in your religion or your relationship with Jesus. The answer is found somewhere else. And it just makes me wonder, in this sick world that we live in where so many Christian leaders here recently are walking away and letting the world know they no longer believe, they no longer are holding on to that faith that they once preached and believed in for so long. It makes me wonder and it makes me want to ask the world a question. What do you do when your life is rocked? 
If you don't believe Jesus is relevant, who do you turn to when your life is rocked? And so we come back to our text, and we know that Job went through all of these terrible things, much worse than mine, much worse than anything I can imagine. And one day he loses everything. He loses his sons and his daughters. He loses his, his animals. He loses his livelihood. He loses everything in one day. And if that wasn't enough, not long after that, he gets a disease. And uh, his wife tells him to curse God and die. And before you know it, he has lost everything. And if you ever want to know what not to say to a friend when their world is rocked, go through and read the book of Job and see what Job's four friends say to him. That's exactly what not to say to a person. And I want to say this as well before I go any further. Just because you find your world rocked, just because you are having a hard time getting the answer to that prayer or having a hard time receiving that healing or that miracle that you need, can I say it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something spiritually wrong with you. It might mean that, but if you check that box and you say, I know God and I are good, It's just a matter of time. Hold on to God and do what you know to do. And so in the middle of all that, Job cries out. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. And Job wanted to know why, but he couldn't possibly begin to understand that God was using Job to be a minister to us thousands of years later, that God was using Job to tell Satan, hey, guess what? You can't get him to give up and to quit on me. He is an incredible example of what it means to trust in me. You can't win this one. And so it makes me wonder, what do people do who do not have Jesus in their life? What do people do when their world is rocked? And so is the concept of Jesus really out of touch with reality today? And Job would say, if only there was someone to mediate between us. If only there was someone that could go to God and say, hey, Job needs to talk to you. If only there was someone that could say, hey, I understand what Job is going through. Hey, God, you need to, if only there was someone that could do that. Oh, Job, if only you could have seen into the future just a little bit. And so we come to Hebrews, and we know in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Therefore, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And I don't know if you've ever read this in the message, but it's really good in the message. Sometimes they don't get it quite right, but I like this. It says this, Now we know what we have. Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God. Let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing and experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. And so people would say that Jesus, he's, he's just a crutch. He's just for people that are weak. Yes, but have you ever felt weak? Have you ever gone through some of the things that I'm, you know, in in talking to the world and wanting to share with them, you're going to go through these things. Where do you go? 
And David would say that, as my heart grows faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you are my refuge, a strong tower. Hannah would say, there is no rock like our God. David would go on to say that truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And so let's ask the world some questions tonight. Quickly, I want to share with you four questions that just run through my mind. For those who say that Jesus is out of touch with reality, what happens when a friend or a loved one passes away? And Pastor Reese mentioned this in his prayer, and we talked about this in Kids Jam as well. And so I, I just love stories. I'm drawn to stories. I'm a story kind of guy. And so sometimes, you know, I want to get through all the names that are in the Bible and, and all of these kind of things and the numbers, and I just want to get to the stories. I just find myself drawn to stories. I don't know if that's how you are or not, but I'm just a story kind of person. We, we come to Lazarus. And I'm amazed that Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick, and so he waits four more days. And we know that when Jesus finally gets there, they've already had the funeral, that he's already in the tomb. We know that Jesus' sister, uh, Lazarus' sisters comes up to Jesus, and both of them say, Lord, if you had only been here, he would not have died. And we know that Jesus tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And we know that Jesus goes to the tomb, and we know that Jesus is standing in front of this tomb, and he's looking around, and he sees the people crying, and he sees the sisters crying, and he begins to think of all the hurt and the pain I believe that Lazarus had to go through, and he begins to understand and to think about and to sympathize with the wounds and the scars that people are dealing with this time. And the Bible says that his heart broke, and he wept. And I wonder, where is the world? When you think that Jesus is out of touch with our reality and he would be someone who would weep with you in the middle of these things, he's the only person who can change it. What government agency are we going to go to? What education uh, seminar are we going to go to? Where are we going to go to the world when we find ourselves going through these kind of things? And it is so incredible that Jesus would sympathize even knowing what he is about to do. And so he tells them to take the stone away. And I'm moving quickly. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus lived. And Lazarus came out. And today Jesus wants us to live. And he wants us to know what real living is all about. He wants us to have life and life to the fullest or life abundantly. He wants you to put your faith in him. And time after time, though you too may die. And someday if our Lord tarries, and yesterday morning we were praying about this, our blessed hope, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if the Lord tarries and I die a natural death, someday he's going to call my name just like he did Lazarus. And we're going to come out of the grave and we're going to be with him forever, and so we will be with him forever with the Lord. And I've struggled with the doctrine that so many people see with the divine healing thing. Uh, over the last few years, I've been told time and time again in some of the places that we've worked that Jesus heals every time because Jesus healed every time in, in the scriptures. Jesus healed every time in the scriptures. So Jesus heals every time. And, and if you aren't being healed, then there's something wrong with your faith. And if you aren't being healed, then there's something wrong with you. And we dealt with that over and over the last couple of years. And I struggle with that internally because nobody wants a healing more than me. But I can't make it happen. I can't snap my fingers and make it happen. When he does it, 
He'll do it, but I can't do it. It's got to be him. And so I look at this story, and it's incredible to me that Jesus waits four days. I say, Jesus heals every time. Did Jesus heal every time? Wait a minute. Yes, Lazarus got his healing, but Jesus waited four days. Why? Because Jesus wants to prove to the world that he does things that are always bigger for his glory. It's one thing to receive a healing and for us to go on, and we give him glory for that. But God sometimes says, you know what? I want more glory. I want a, bigger, a better story. I want a bigger story. I want to do something even more incredible. And so he takes his time allowing Lazarus to go through what he goes through, knowing I'm about to do something incredible. And here Jesus is standing in front of that stone, and they're saying, we know that he could have healed him. All the people are murmuring behind in the scenes, and they're saying, we've seen him heal before. He could have healed him. If only he had been here, he could have done something. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus. And then all those same people are saying, we've never seen that before. We've never seen that one before, because Jesus is all about receiving the ultimate glory. And I want my life, and I pray that your life will bring the ultimate glory to God. And so can I hold on to God, and can we hold on to God so much so that, Lord, you may never heal me from some of these things that I'm asking a healing for, but your grace is sufficient, it's more than enough for me, and I'm believing that you're going to do it. But if you don't in this lifetime, I'm going to live again in another lifetime with a new body, and I will be healed. It's a miracle. If I could, I could get on that tangent, I've got to move quickly. But, you know, the, the friends that, lo that lowered the, the paralyzed man through the, through the roof, Jesus didn't say, you're healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's a bigger story. There's something more important that takes place. It's more important that I make it to heaven. I could be healed in this lifetime and miss heaven. It's more important that I make it to heaven. Number two, what happens when a friend leaves you or turns their back on you? And John chapter 6, Jesus gives a message and he gives a sermon on, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And so many people said, man, this is a hard saying. Who can receive this? And John writes and says that from that day forth, many of Jesus' disciples left him. And the Bible says Jesus turned and talked to the 12 disciples and he said, you're not going to leave too, are you? You're not going to give up on me too, are you? And then Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Peter was saying, Lord, you're a rock. We've got nowhere else to go. You're the person that we're holding on to. We believe in you. And we know that Jesus had friends that walked away from him. And we know that the night before uh, he is arrested, that he tells Peter, you know, you're going to betray me, Peter. And we know that Peter says, Lord, I will never deny you. I will die for you. And Jesus says, not only once, Peter, but three times will you deny me. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And we know the story. And it's amazing to me how Jesus is being interrogated and tortured. He goes to, to Herod and he goes to, to Pilate and Herod and then Herod back to Pilate. And we know that he's in the courtyard being cruelly mistreated. And all of a sudden, before Peter even knows that the rooster crows, and John says Jesus could look through the courtyard and Peter could look through the courtyard and they locked eyes on each other. And the Bible says that Peter remembered the words of the Lord and he went out and he wept bitterly. What I'm saying is Jesus can identify, Jesus can sympathize, Jesus has been there, he understands, but the world, 
They don't have an answer for any of these things. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's been there. He has the scars. Number three, what happens when you've been betrayed or stabbed in the back, so to speak? Well, Jesus has certainly been through that, right? I mean, we vividly understand that. We vividly have read about that, and we know how Judas was one of the 12 and how he was close to Jesus and how he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They say today that 30 pieces of silver, well, that might have amounted to $500, but then you take into account they took that 30 pieces of silver and they bought a field in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem area. Think about it today. How much would a field in the Jerusalem area today cost? A million dollars, maybe? Would you betray your best friend for $500? Would you betray your best friend for a million dollars? And yet, essentially, that's what Judas did. And he betrayed him with a kiss. And sadly, it happens in our world. And sadly, it happens in our churches when people leave the church. Why? I don't understand. When people hurt you in the church, why? I don't understand. And Jesus says, I know. I've been there. I've got the scars to prove it as well. And finally, I come to number four. What happens when your own family turns away from you? What happens when your own family walks away from you? Where's the world? What answers does the world have? They want to say that God is out of touch with reality. They want to say that God is not relevant, that God doesn't exist, that Jesus is old news. And yet, when they talk to Christian leaders in the media, they want to say, if God is a God of love, why does he allow this, this, and this? Wait a minute, I thought you just said that God doesn't exist. If he exists, then how, uh, if he doesn't exist, then why are you blaming him for everything? But what happens when your own family, your parents, your children, your spouse, what happens when they leave you? And so some would say, well, how did Jesus deal with that? And we know that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We know that Jesus had earthly sisters as well. We don't know their names, but we just know that none of them early on believed that Jesus was the Son of God. As a matter of fact, they were gathered outside a crowd one day, and they wanted to get Jesus' attention to tell him, essentially, hey, you need to quit doing this because you're not, this is crazy stuff. So they weren't happy with him, and they didn't necessarily believe until after the resurrection. But there's another one that I want you to think about with me tonight. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who's experienced it all, yet without the sin, having been cruelly mistreated, and here he is being put on a cross with the nails and the crown of thorns and all that he's gone through, and he's hanging on this cross, and he begins to cry out, I'm thirsty. Can I tell you tonight, I don't think that he meant I like some water. I'm sure that he would. I'm sure that physically speaking, he would love a, a, a nice cup of cool water as he's hanging on that cross. But my mind is, I'm thinking, when he says, I thirst, he begins to feel that connection that he had had with his father, having prayed so often, having gone by himself alone on a mountainside somewhere to be in connection, in constant connection with his father. He began to feel the distance in the father because he was taking upon himself your sins and my sins, and Jesus cries out, I thirst. You know, David would say, as the, as, as the deer pants for the water, Lord, I thirst for you. I thirst for your presence. I thirst to be close to you. 
And he begins to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe that it's at that moment, I believe it's at that time when God the Father takes your sins and my sins and he places those sins on his son, Jesus, the only one worthy to do what he did. And the Bible says this, and Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I see a, a holy God, the Father, who has been looking down from heaven this whole time, but now his son has taken on himself your sins and my sins, and the holy God cannot behold sin. And he begins to turn his eyes away for a few minutes. And Jesus feels that, and he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? And I'm so glad that Jesus took my place, and he cries out, Yet into your spirit, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies there. I'm so glad that three days later he comes back from the dead victorious, and he has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He took my place, and yet he rose from the dead so that I could be with him and he could be with me someday in the physical so that I could go home to be with him. He took my place, and yet he knows what it feels like when the closest family member would walk away or turn away from you. Jesus has been there. He's felt that wound. He has that scar. Jesus has scars, and he proudly wears them. He proudly wears those scars to prove his love for you and me. As a matter of fact, we know that he's got the scars in his hands. In the Old Testament, it says that I've engraved your name on my hands. How? It's through the nails. My name is on his hands. And I close with this tonight. When my life was falling apart and I was trying to hang on and still trying to minister, I would get up early in the morning, drive across, across Dallas, work in the office, lead a church in worship, drive back home to an empty house day after day. I remember coming home late one night and I was so tired and so drained and so angry, having one-sided conversations with God. You know what that is, right? It's all me talking, and God's listening, I'm sure. And I pulled into the garage, and I shut the garage door, and I left the car running, and I said, God, I don't want to live anymore. I want to live like this. And I remember, I can't explain it all because it's such a blur to me. I, I, I can't tell you how it happened, but I remember closing my eyes and going to sleep. I know that it happened sometime around midnight, after midnight, and I vividly remember waking up sometime later. I don't know what time it was. And I remember thinking and being so angry, it didn't work. God, why didn't it work? I'm so angry. I didn't tell us so. I didn't tell the pastor. I didn't tell anyone. I got up the next morning, and I drove back to work and acted like nothing had happened. But I, I wasn't right. My mind wasn't right. Sometime later, through a series of events, I realized that it was, I, I needed to get away. And so I was encouraged to take a sabbatical. And 
I can honestly say that it was at this time that our pastor spoke into my life, did some incredible things for me. Several of his friends did some incredible things for me. And after a year of sabbatical, I was invited to work at a beautiful church in Houston. And uh, lots of counseling, lots of dealing with a lot of things. And things were good, but I was five hours away from my little girl. And so I uh, resigned my position. God made an incredible way. I remember back, if, if this had happened 15, 10, 15 years ago, I'd never be able to get married again and still be an assembly God minister. But God gave me a miracle, and I have a beautiful wife. I got a beautiful family. We have a house. I get to share my story with you, and God is good to us. And here we are tonight. I remember sitting in a conference with some of our leaders of the district, and a man that I highly respect, he looked at me and he said, someday you're going to walk the aisle with your daughter. You need to keep that in mind. You got to stay alive to walk down the aisle for your daughter. My daughter was so young. I, oh, I'm not even thinking like that. I mean, what do, what do you mean? Think I, my daughter, I, you know, it was the furthest thing from my mind, but it, I, I vividly remember him telling me that and, and me supposed to hold on to that. This past January, the man that my daughter had come to know for two years as her stepdad passed away. It was a terrible choice that was made. I'm so thankful that it was not anywhere near where my daughter was at the time. I received a phone call from a mutual friend. I took it upon myself to go to school that day. My daughter knew that something was wrong that morning but had no idea what it was. I took it upon myself to leave the office, to drive across Dallas, to go and sit down with my little girl, the principal, and a school counselor and explain to her that your stepdad is not coming home. That is the most unusual thing for me to have ever had to do. Choices that I did not want that began with one choice after another that was out of my control. And yet, here daddy was, still getting to be daddy for his daughter. God made a way that it was me and not somebody else to share that with her. Hard to do. And yet, I see God's hand in everything. I would love to see some more. I'd love to see that miracle. I'd love to see some answers to prayer, and I know that you would too. But God is in control, and until he does, I'm holding on to him. The message says, now we know that we have Jesus, this great high priest, with ready access to God. Let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. He's been through weakness and testing. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. I want my scars. I want my life. I pray that your scars, I pray that your life brings ultimate glory to him.
even if I never get the answer I want on this side of heaven, someday I'll see him face to face, and it will be worth it all. Father, I come before you tonight. God, thank you for my friends that was said and listened. Lord, I pray, God, that they remember not so much my story, but, Lord, your story and all the things that you went through for us and how you overcame for us and how you are God, and yet you, too, came down to mediate, Lord, for us. Thank you for being that person. Thank you for being our mediator, Jesus. Thank you for coming and identifying with us and presenting us to the Father clean, righteous and holy, washed in your blood. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for your work in this church. Thank you for your work in every individual here tonight. God, continue to write your story. Lord, continue to write your story through our lives. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand. Keith, thank you so much for opening your heart tonight. What a beautiful message and what a beautiful story of God's redemption. Before we dismiss, I just want to pray just one more prayer and give you one more scripture. The scripture says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, when your pain seems so great, and so intense. Some things are so painful that you don't even feel like you can share them with anyone. And while we go through trials and storms, sometimes we can't even explain it of why things happen like they do. And you know, sometimes we stuff things down. For years we stuff things down. I shared something recently that I had never shared with anyone hardly and the Holy Spirit just brought it up said you need to share that I want to pray for you maybe someone watching on our live feed here I just want to pray for that comfort the enemy can just bombard us with thoughts that were not useful and I remember Keith you remember this years ago years ago I told you you're valuable you were struggling, and I said, you're valuable, brother. Never never even knew you would be here helping us. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? He was in a very low time in his life. And when somebody's in a low time, you need to speak a word in season, like apples of gold and pitchers of silver, and lift them up. You know, and I'm just so grateful for you and Michael. You, you're a blessing to us. We just see what the Lord will do. But uh, you are valuable. Your message is perfect tonight. But I want to pray. And, and as I pray, I'm going to pray for you that are here. But I think maybe I'm more praying for us to be sensitive to this week. Maybe you need to go home and make a call to someone. So, Father, we remind your people tonight. Come to me, Jesus said. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Father, put a word of encouragement in each of our mouths. There's people that feel like they're hanging on the end of the rope. There's people that feel discouraged and the enemy will come in on top of that discouragement and he will begin to 
to drill down with fiery darts of fear, of worthlessness, of hopelessness. But Lord, we know that you are the God of hope. You are the God that speaks hope to us. You are the God of comfort. So I pray that you would strengthen us in your grace. Strengthen your people in your grace and give us an anointing to help others find strength. Help us to be strengtheners of the body of Christ. Thank you for this beautiful message. May it minister grace for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.